Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 16, reading 15 verses of Scripture. This is Jesus continuing in the story we've been reading. And I do want to make mention, it's easy for us to start a new chapter and think that there's somehow some division in the conversation. The chapters were added, the chapter numbers were added in the Bible a long time after this was all written. Uh, so the, the chapters are not natural, the verses are not natural. We use them for points of reference. But I say that because we should think about reading this verse as the end of chapter 15 continues. There's no break in the conversation. Jesus is just continuing to speak. So he says, I have said all these things, and he's referring to everything he just said. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And here the Helper, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit is not going to come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. For a few moments this morning, continuing John, I'm going to speak on the word that keeps and the spirit that guides. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for your word and your spirit that are both here alive and among us to do the miraculous in our hearts and minds. Transform us through the power of your word, through the anointing of your spirit. Change us into reflecting your image a little more perfectly this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When Jesus says in verse 1, I have said all these things, what are these things that he's referring to? Well, it refers to what Jesus had just said in the previous chapter. And what he said, the last section that he said in particular in John 15 was, If the world hates you, 
know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were not of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The desire for the world to give the church approval or to receive approval in and of yourself as a believer, that desire is cancerous. The world, the culture that we live in, does not worship God. The society that we are a part of does not bow before His majesty. It cannot and it will not ever have the values of the kingdom of God. They persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. Persecution will come. There are a few things, few things in this world that are worse than falling away from Christ. And this is what Jesus says. I'm going to say these things to you to keep you from falling away. And there are a few things sadder that I have observed than a person who falls away from Christ. I don't mean a person who has a bad day. I don't mean that you stumble. I don't mean that you sin. I don't mean that you cuss, that you fail God, that you cut somebody off in traffic and say something that you didn't mean to say. I'm talking about walking away from God. Wholesale leaving the faith. There are a couple words we use to describe this. The first word, and the word that's usually used, is backsliding. It describes someone who slides back in their faith. I've seen, I've watched people my entire life backslide, walk away from God. I grew up in a church that it was often said, if we brought all the backsliders back into this church, the church would not fit. We would have to add a balcony, build another building if we brought everybody who came that eventually walked away. Nobody backslides overnight. Used to see people, they would stop coming to church, and when they would stop coming to church, they say, oh, I'm afraid they're backsliding. You know, no, they backslid on the pew a long time ago. The stopping coming to church for good was just the final nail in the coffin to their backsliding. People backslide on the pew in church before they ever walk away because it does not happen overnight. It happens over time. They give up. They surrender. It's too hard. I can't live this way. It's too restrictive. There are too many hypocrites. There's a myriad of reasons why people say they walk away from God and the church. I would argue that at the root of all of it, though, is a failure to see God for who He really is. To see His glory as more glorious than anything that they can walk toward. They become blind to God's glory. Paul wrote about our default position in this world. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, referring to Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan works, spiritual warfare works by Satan by blinding the minds of people to see the glory of God. And people who walk away from faith 
are being deceived by the enemy. Their eyes are being blinded once again to the glory of God. That is our default position in this world. We are born with minds that are blind to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. This is what salvation is. Salvation is the supernatural, miraculous work of God revealing to us who He is, taking the blinders off, healing our spiritual eyesight, letting us see Jesus for who He is. It happens through faith. He declares us righteous, and that blindness, the scales fall off of our eyes. When people backslide, whatever reason they give, at the root of their walking away is an onset of spiritual blindness. Not of the eyes, but of the mind and of the heart. I say this knowing that there are people who have been genuinely and legitimately wounded in the church. What should be the safest place on the planet can at times be a battleground where good saints are wounded. It happens. I've seen it happen. I would say to anyone hurt by the church to remember that what you are defining as the church is the people, the imperfect, sinful people who comprise the church. The people inside a church who hurt other people are not in that moment representative of God or His kingdom or His purpose or His character. They are reflecting their human nature, their sinful nature. God will never, ever hurt you. He may chastise you. He may discipline you. But He will never do anything that's going to cause you to fall, to fail. He will never drive you away. The conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit is not to drive you away from the throne of grace. God doesn't prick your heart and convict you of things to push you away. That's what Satan's condemnation does. Condemnation drives you away from the throne of grace. God's conviction on your sin always draws you to a place of repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. Jesus said, but that all should come to repentance. And I said there were two words that are used for people who walk away. The first word has been around forever. We call it backsliding. The second word, I only have heard this word in the last four or five years where it's really come to, to light, and that word is deconstruction. This is a more sophisticated form of backsliding. It's all the rage. It's more intellectual. It's contemplative. I'm going to deconstruct my worldview, my belief system, so that I can rebuild something else in its place. It's happened, probably the reason why we've heard it the last few years is because high-profile leaders, pastors, professors of Christianity have walked away from the faith, and that's what it's been dubbed as. It wasn't that they fell into some vile sin. It's they said, I don't think Christianity holds the merit anymore of what is absolute truth. So you have people, and the, the news media really does love to grab a hold of people who do this and highlight them. Uh, you don't, if somebody in Christianity, especially if it's deconstruction, you can bet the news is going to talk about it. Last few years... One of the most well-known guys that did this, his name was Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris was all the rage within Christian circles. Uh, years ago, during the kind of what is dubbed the purity movement uh, in, within evangelical churches, and Josh Harris, Josh Harris wrote a book entitled, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And he was kind of the poster child for a lot of this. And Harris... You know, he has deconstructed. He has walked away from the faith. 
pretty well-known professor of theology that wrote a lot of articles or some articles on a group that I follow. He was a contributor there. He did the same thing. He, he deconstructed. I could go on and on as examples, high-profile pastors who didn't necessarily, it wasn't a sin that they were noted for. It was, I no longer believe this is true. I know that part of the reason some people deconstruct their faith is the frustration of a world view that is framed by the modern evangelical movement that is far too simple to take into account the world that we live in. It's one of the flaws of fundamentalism, fundamental Christianity or fundamentalists that are a little too fundamentalist and the world view is, is not quite complex enough to handle the realities of life and, and I, I understand that but I would still argue that at the heart of all of this it's still the same reason as why people backslide. They're blind to God's glory. You can call it backsliding, you can call it deconstruction, you can call it any other name that you can come up with. It really is all the same is my point. It is all a failure to see God's glory. Now we go to verse 1 in John 16. Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, to keep you from backsliding, deconstructing, whatever you want to call it, falling away. My words will keep you from falling away is what Jesus is saying. Jesus does not want us to fall away. His words are life. His teachings anchor our faith in Him. That's why we need the Word of God so desperately. Because His Word keeps us from falling away. When we read it, when we hear it, when we embrace it, when we believe it, when we obey it, His words keep us from falling away. Jesus tells a crowd of people one time, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And a large group of those people turned around and walked away. Like, I don't know who this guy is, but I don't want any part of a guy that says I have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And Jesus doesn't go chasing them down the trail saying, hey, hold up, I think you misunderstood. That was actually just a metaphor. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He turns around to his core group of disciples and looks at them and says, are you guys going to walk away also? They walked away. What are you going to do? Peter's answer to that question is why Peter fails later, but he doesn't backslide. He denies Christ later, but he doesn't fall away. Because his answer to that question was, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He doesn't fall away because he understands that the words of Jesus are eternal life. It's the essence of what Jesus is saying. These things I say to you, I say them to keep you from backsliding. This is why Peter could find repentance. This is why Peter made it. It's because he understood this. Judas, I've seen Christmas or, excuse me, Easter dramas where Judas is portrayed by you know, he always, a lot of times I've seen him, he always has this funny little goatee that's supposed to make him look kind of menacing. And he's like, he's the guy you could pick out of the crowd. Like, if you saw the 12 disciples walk on the stage of the Easter drama, you'd say, well, that's Judas. But that's not how it really was. 
We see in Scripture that the disciples, even up to the end, didn't know who he was, Jesus was talking about. Judas blended in perfectly. He was stealing money. He was the group treasurer that was funneling money into himself. He was dishonest, and later he would betray Jesus. But he never found a place of repentance. He was blind to the fact that the words of this man are eternal life. It drives him to jump off the side of a cliff, off of a hill, and the Bible says his blood and guts burst out everywhere in his suicide. Um, that's, that's how he ended his life, because he failed to see. That was the difference between him and Peter. People will disappoint me, churches will fail me, but none of that changes the fact that the only source of eternal life is God's Word. Now, Jesus is getting ready in verse 2. He's going to shift the conversation. He's going to talk about persecution. But the apostasy, the backsliding in verse 1 is a far greater danger than persecution to the church will ever be. Hold fast to the Word of God. Now, John who was writing these words of Jesus, he will later on develop an idea of why and how people depart from the faith. So you see John's recording, he's writing down the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. In 1 John, years later, this is what he'll say about people who fall away. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So John later on develops some doctrine about people who walk away from God. But right now he's just recording the words of Jesus. Jesus shifts the conversation in verse 2 to persecution. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I took a church history course last year, and I was reminded that the church throughout history has always, it's been cyclical, but the church consistently has always faced persecution. In the year 325, there was a council of church leaders that came from all over the part of the world at that time. And they went to a city called Nicaea. It's where northwest Turkey is today. There was a city there called Nicaea. And they, they gather together, they're called together by the emperor Constantine because there's this rift within Christianity. There's this massive controversy within Christianity. And the emperor says, we're going to settle this once and for all. Now, remember that the emperor now is, is Christian, uh, he's, he's a, which is different than what they were used to. But now, now they have a leader of the world who is sympathetic to their cause. And so these men gather from all over the world. They come into this council, hundreds of men. But the main thing the council is known for is to crush in that council a heresy called Arianism and formulating a creed, we call it the Nicene Creed, they had it in Nicaea, they formulated a creed that would retain the deity and true nature of Jesus Christ. Now that, if you ever study church history at all, you are going to encounter this event early on because it is one of the most important events that happens in church history. 
This is at fairly at the beginning. It's 1,700 years ago. It's a big deal in Christianity that sets a trajectory and a path for where the church goes. So if you ever read anything about church history, you're going to run across this council. What is often not talked about when you read about this is the fact that the men who come to this council show up. Many of them are blind, they're lame, they're walking with canes, they're missing limbs, they have bodily permanent injury. This is a unique group of leaders because in the past, when they were younger, they suffered for their faith. These are men who survived but were left maimed for their entire life. If you could have been an observer at the Council of Nicaea, you would have seen a lot of hurting, suffering ministers, leaders. Dr. Todd Johnson, uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary, very well-respected seminary, in his studies, he estimates that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last 2,000 years. More than half of those died in the 20th century. Your belief and allegiance to a man named Jesus is very dangerous to your health. It's hard for us to say that because we don't really, right now on February 26th, 2023 in the United States of America, we don't feel that way. But in the world and historically, and who knows what's to come, that may very well play out in our lives. Your belief and allegiance to the man named Jesus, I would say even in our culture, while it may not be dangerous today to your physical health, it can be dangerous in a lot of other ways. The last words Jesus will utter in this chapter before he turns to his Father in John 17 to pray is this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You want a guarantee from Jesus? There's a guarantee. You will have tribulation. I love the last part of that. He doesn't stop. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's our hope. Jesus has overcome all of this. When I get discouraged, I remind myself that there are people who have suffered in ways for the faith that I have not. One of the greatest missionaries, well-known missionaries ever, is a man named Adoniram Judson. I've never heard the name Adoniram before, so usually he's just referred to as Judson. But Judson went to the nation to the country of Burma in the early 1800s. He was born in the late 1700s. He's up in New England and he travels across the world at a time when world travel was very difficult and he becomes a missionary to Burma. And as a missionary to Burma, they went six years in Burma before they ever saw one single convert to the faith. He labored for six years in a country that was idolatrous, a country with massive temples that dominated the skyline, built and devoted to Buddha. This is, this is a hostile environment, and he labors for six years. After 
35 years on the mission field, he would write towards the end of his life, American Christians pledged themselves to the work of evangelizing the world. They had but little to rest on except the command and promise of God. So how did it go for Adoniram and Anne? Well, they get on a boat to go on the other side of the world and his wife Anne is pregnant. And on the way, Anne becomes very sick. The delivery nurse that they took with them, she dies. And the baby is stillborn while they're still at sea. They get to Burma. In his diary, he says it's foggy, it's dark, it's depressing. There's just bugs everywhere. Um, we are definitely segmented off. We're these strange people in a strange land. But Anne becomes pregnant again. She has horrible complications. But little Roger Judson is born healthy. And eight months later, baby Roger Judson will die of a fever. Adoniram Judson wrote, Our little Roger died last, Sunday, last Saturday morning. This is the fourth day and we just begin to think, what can we do for the heathen? Oh, may we not suffer in vain. May this bereavement be sanctified to our souls. After Roger died, Judson begins to experience horrific pain in his eyes and his head to the point where he cannot read, he can't function. His wife Anne would read to him and he would say even the sound of her voice would cause him pain in his head. He would go on in this condition to translate some of the New Testament into the Burmese language, which while he was there he had to learn. He goes there in the midst of all of this chaos, learns the language, and then begins to transfer the Word of God into their native tongue under these conditions. Jason Dusing wrote an article on Judson where he gives us three lessons, and these are his words, and I think it's worth reading this because I think it is helpful to us. This is Dusing's words. He said, first, don't be surprised by initial discouragements. Adoniram cautioned that you will, this is Adoniram speaking, you will be met with disappointments and discouragements, which will lead you at first almost to regret that you have embarked in the cause. Beware, therefore, of the reaction you will experience from a combination of all these causes, lest you become disheartened at commencing your work. Second, don't let fatigue lead you into temptation. Adoniram warned of a pull toward ease after you have acquired the language and become fatigued and worn out with preaching the gospel to a disobedient and gainsaying people. Judson explained that fatigue often causes the missionary to want to seek another more comfortable pursuit and Satan will likely comply to tempt him with such an opportunity. And third, don't let secret pride take root. Even Burns shared that Adoniram grew fond of jumping rope as the best kind of exercise and saw maintaining physical health as vital to ensure he could maximize each day for spiritual tasks. Yet Judson knew that survival on the mission field did not come solely by means of physical health. He admonished future missionaries to guard their spiritual health 
and to beware of pride, not the pride of proud men, but the pride of humble men, the secret pride which is apt to grow out of the consciousness that we are esteemed by the great and the good. We may never be missionaries to a foreign land, but we are missionaries where we live. And all of these things apply to us. We will suffer for the gospel's sake, and God will use that suffering for the glory and fulfillment and furthering of his kingdom. Jesus continues to speak in verse 4. He said, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What I want us to notice, notice here is that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as him. Because the Holy Spirit is fully God. We confess that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not parts of God. They are fully God. God is not divisible. God cannot be divided up like a pie chart into thirds. This is not how the Godhead works. He is, God is simple. And sometimes we use that word as an insult, but what I mean by simple is that He's one. He's not made up of parts. He's not complicated in, in his essence, in his nature, in his being. God is one. This is what it means for us to confess that there is only one God. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, we are praying to God. When we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, we, we confess that Jesus is God. The fullness of deity dwells within the body of Jesus. He is both fully man and He is fully God. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are not filled with a thing. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. Like the Holy Spirit, like it's an object. It's not a thing. It's not a force. It's a person. And Jesus in these verses refers to the Holy Spirit as He. He will come. So the Holy Spirit is a person. This is how Jesus refers to the coming promise of the Holy Spirit. And this Him, the Holy Spirit, is fully God Himself. He's not a third of God. He's not partially God. The Holy Spirit is God Himself. I grew up in a faith tradition that placed great emphasis on the Holy Spirit as we should. But it was usually centered around the book of Acts. And Acts is certainly filled with people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's true. But you have to go back to the Gospels. And rarely in my life have I heard people make the connection between the Gospels, the words of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus starts in this chapter laying the groundwork for what is to come in the book of Acts. If you want to see the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, you've got to go back to the words of Jesus here where He tells you, this is why I'm sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not to make you feel good. Nowhere in Scripture will you find any reference to anything about the Holy Spirit giving you an experience. 
It's not in there. The, the text, the Bible, the scriptures do not talk about the Holy Spirit existing so that you could have a good feeling. It's not to give you goosebumps. It's not to give you anything like that. This is why the Holy Spirit came. John 16, 7. I tell you a truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit is not coming. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you're not going to see me any longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is convicting. John is framing the Holy Spirit as a prosecuting attorney. He's on the offense. He is at work in the world convicting sin. This is what God does in the world, is convict sin. The Holy Spirit is at work in our own lives convicting us of our own indwelling sin. Those are two separate things going on. And we love that the Holy Spirit is in the world convicting sin. This comes out practically in our prayers as we cheerfully pray, God, lead our leaders to vote against abortion. I think that's a good prayer. I think we should pray that. God, lead our leaders to make decisions that do this, this, and this, that move away from sinful practice. That's good. We should pray that. But we also have to pray, God, let your Holy Spirit cleanse me of my own indwelling sin. Famous quote from the Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And Owen is who really introduces us to the, the term indwelling sin. It's indwelling sin is that sin that the believer has after they come to faith, but they're not exactly like Jesus. If you were exactly like Jesus, you wouldn't have any indwelling sin, but none of us are. We say we're Christian, which means Christ-like. None of us are Christ-like. None of us perfectly reflect the nature of Jesus. We just don't. This is what happens between justification when God saves us and glorification at the end of our race. That whole gap between justification and glorification is sanctification. That's becoming more like Jesus. That means that I should look more like Christ than I did a year ago. And it means that I should be on a path to grow, that I'm going to look more like Jesus a year from now than I do today. But I'm not on there yet. It's a, it's a journey. And as spirit-filled believers, we must always be fighting indwelling sin. Jesus continues, verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit also does is He glorifies Jesus. I watched a sermon yesterday on, it was entitled A Prayer for Awakening. It was actually a chapel service for a group of seminary students. Um, and the man was leading the devotion for the seminary students, and this is particularly applicable in this setting because it is at a seminary the last few weeks where we've had the, the Asbury revival. And so he's speaking to a group of students that are similarly 
in the same place that Asbury is in. They're, they're seminary students. And so he, he goes through and he talks about marks. Like if you want to know about revival, we need to look at past revivals. What has happened in the past with revivals? One of the things that, that there were nine things that he had takeaways, that these are nine marks of historic revivals, and one of those is that there is always a re-emphasis on the blood of Jesus. In other words, the gospel. There was always a re-emphasis on the gospel message. But another one of those dealt with how central Christ comes back into the picture. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. We say the Holy Spirit is what gives revival. Yes. And what the Holy Spirit does is He brings the person of Jesus back to the forefront. Exactly what Jesus says in verse 14. He, who's the He? The He is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. He's talking about what's to come. So when the Holy Spirit comes, because remember, here's where we're at. Jesus is about to be crucified. After he's crucified, he's going to be in the grave for three days. He's going to rise again. He's going to uh, walk among the people for about 40 days. And then he's going to ascend into heaven. And then about seven to ten days after the ascension is when the Holy Spirit is poured out in the book of Acts. So what he's saying here, that the Holy Spirit is, Holy Spirit is coming, it's coming in a matter of weeks. It's about two months off. It's really, really close. After the ascension of Christ, after the crucifixion of Jesus, we're roughly 50 days out to the day of Pentecost. That's why we call it the day of Pentecost. It's about 50 days after the Passover. It's Penta 5. It's Pentecost. It's 50 days after the Passover. So what he's talking about is coming about really, really soon. So what happens when Peter... This could be a sermon all unto itself, because I'm having to rush way too much through this to emphasize, but I want us to see that Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. Because what's to come in just a matter of a few weeks is Jesus is going to ascend into the heavens. Before He does, He's going to say, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. It's coming. So they go, and they go to this upstairs room. It starts out with 500 people. About 380 of those people leave before the promise comes. But on the day of Pentecost, there's about 120 people. The day of Pentecost had happened many, many, many times. It was a Jewish feast. And on the day of Pentecost, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared upon them cloven tongues like as a fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. And there's people from all over the world. Luke, who's writing Acts, says there's Parthians and Medes and Elamites, in other words, people from all over the world who come, and they're hearing these native Jews speak in their language from their country. Others mocked and said, these are, these are drunk. And Peter comes out and says, they're, they're not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day, it's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that it shall come to pass in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. This is the fulfillment of what Joel was prophesying. And Peter goes on and 
Here's what the Holy Spirit does. This is why I'm bringing us through the story of Acts 2. Because what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is going to come and glorify me, this is what's happening in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Peter says, this one that you crucified, you, all of you Jewish leaders, all of you people who were chanting in the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. This man, Jesus has made both Lord, or God has made this man both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament promised. And furthermore, what you're seeing today poured out all these people speaking another language. That's what he says in Acts 2.33, that what's happened is the Son has been risen from the dead by the Father and has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And the Father has taken that promise of the Holy Spirit and given it to His Son. And Jesus has poured out today, the one that has ascended has poured out His Spirit. That's what you're seeing today. What is happening here? What's happening, this is what get, often gets mixed, missed in Acts 2, is that Jesus is being brought into the center of everything. It's, it's the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do in John 16. The Holy Spirit is going to glorify me. It's going to lift me up. It's going to bring me back to the center of everything. This is what Peter does in his sermon. Peter is just bringing Jesus right back into the fold. And it comes to the point to where... The people see this. They realize this. The Bible says they're pricked in their hearts and they cry out to the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're pricked. They're condemned. They're convicted. Their eyes have been opened up. And Peter gives the statement, the imperative, the command, repent. It always starts with repentance. You've just killed Jesus. You better repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the remission, the word remission means forgiveness, for the remission, forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises unto you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did Peter testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Again, in verse 38, Peter saying, Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's bringing Jesus like the Holy Spirit's at work, but he's bringing Jesus right back into the center of the conversation. Like if we reduce what it means to be baptized in the name as a command or instruction for a formula for the person who's doing the baptizing to say words, if that's what we mean by being baptized in the name, we are really reducing the power and meaning of what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Be baptized in the name of Jesus is to be buried with Christ in baptism. It's not just given so you can tell somebody these are the words you need to say. It's much more grand. It's much more gl just glorious and beautiful than that. It's saying that you as a believer are after you repent, you are being buried with Christ in baptism. You are being placed within Christ. Your old identity is dying. You are taking on a new identity. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. All of this is happening in baptism. You say, you got all of that from that one sentence, he will glorify me. Like, yes, because he is the Holy Spirit and Jesus is saying, will in the future, he's going to glorify me. And we see all of this just explode in Acts 2. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
Jesus is the ultimate truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All truth flows from the truth, the person of Jesus Christ. Truth matters. We are careful about how we handle the Word of God. I, I only have to listen to a preacher a very short time to determine if I want to keep listening to him. And my standard is not how charismatic is he, how eloquent is the preacher. It's how careful do they handle the Word of God. If you play fast and loose with Scripture and you just import any old idea that you want to because it kind of fits, that's dangerous. We want to be a people who handle the Word of God Carefully, There are so many ideas out in the world today, in the religious world today. We are dedicated to the best of our ability with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to discern what is truth. As we close, and we're going to sing in just a moment in closing, if you have truth, it will give your walk with God integrity. It will give integrity and character to who you are as a person, It will transform your relationships, your marriage, your life. God, help us to think right, and He will, because He promised it in all of these verses. He's going to lead us into all truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have taken the words this morning of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, spoken, recorded 2,000 years ago. It was said of Jesus, never has a man spoke like this man speaks. And even yet today, 2,000 years later, we've never heard anyone else say the words like Jesus says them. They are our source of eternal life. So this morning, help us today to embrace them Help those words to become alive within us. Help your Holy Spirit to impart the words to us. And then, Lord, the rest of this week to take what has been spoken this morning, not my words, but your word that has been spoken here this morning, and let it filter into the deep recesses of our soul that on Tuesday afternoons and Thursday mornings as we battle and fight through the fog of a secular world, that your word would keep us and it will do what you promised it will do, that your word will keep us from falling away. Go with us. Keep your hand upon us. Let us be lights and witnesses. We ask this this morning in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning as we sing.